We're going to open our Bibles together. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the back back there. Feel free to um, uh, go get one. You can borrow it if you need to borrow it. If you need to take it with you because you don't have a Bible that you can read and understand, uh, please feel free to do that. That is perfectly fine with us. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into Jeremiah together. Uh, Father, for these moments, would you open up our hearts, uh, give us clear heads, um, uh, eyes to see, yes, ears to hear, yes, mainly, mainly a heart that is responsive um, and, and ready to say yes to you. And so help us with that. Um, Holy Spirit, bring clarity and power from your word um, to bear on us because we don't want to be the same people. Otherwise, this is a religious practice and we should all be at home. We want to be different, so transform us by your power. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're kicking off a series called Directions. And um, as we're I'm thinking about this, uh, the, the idea is that we would, um, everybody makes choices in life. We're going to look at how to um, uh, make these choices godly choices. That's kind of what we're after, okay? That's the, that's the heartbeat of this series. And so if you have your Bible in Jeremiah chapter 29, as I said, if you don't, you can borrow one from the back. Uh, back there. And really today, I just uh, we're going to talk about questions and fears and plans, all of that kind of stuff, and try to get to the most important question uh, when it comes to uh, directions and decisions. Now, here's where we are. We're going to jump into Jeremiah 29, and there's going to be a verse in here. If you've been around church very long, you're going to recognize you probably have it on a coffee cup. Uh, but it's a true statement. But uh, you, you need to get the context of this before we get there. And just briefly set it up historically. Um, uh, the, the people of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, have been wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. And they have not only been wiped out, defeated militarily, but many of them have been carried away into what the Bible calls exile. So they've been uprooted from their homes. I mean, they took, for, uh, for instance, they took us from uh, Texas, proud as we may be, and they moved us to Oregon. I mean, that'd be terrible, right? I don't know if anything's wrong with Oregon. I've never actually been there. But I'm just saying, like that would be, I mean, to leave Texas, that would be leaving home. So uh, this is what has happened to them. They've been uprooted. And so here's, here's where we go. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent uh, from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So just be clear, Jeremiah is writing, and he's writing to the people who are in exile. Verse 2, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. Verse 3, the letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. If you're looking for kids' names, I highly recommend Jeremiah 29. It said, verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Uh, take wives to your sons, excuse me, for your sons, and give your uh, daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. 
For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring back to you, bring you back, excuse me, to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plan for welfare or peace or shalom and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Um, I want to put these three words, or really, I guess, four words, two words and a phrase. I just want to set these things before us because I think this is the challenge that the text lays out. Uh, they're in a different context than you and me, although there are some similarities. They are facing different challenges than you and me, although there are some similarities. And let, it all begins with this single word, the word commit. Commit. And I'm going to point us back uh, to verse four here in just a second, so you can just put your finger there. But here's where I want to start, is that choices have consequences. When we talk about directions, when we talk about decisions, one of the things that we need to hold on to and one of the things we need to remember is that choices have consequences. Why are the people of Judah in exile in Babylon? Because of the choices that the people of Judah made. Because of the things that they chose to do. They chose to rebel against God. They chose to worship idols instead of the living and true God. Uh, they chose to uh, um, act as if they didn't know God. And so God, in his discipline, um, took them out. He swept them away from their place, de uh, dislocated them and, uh, from their, not only their, their uh, land, uh, but from the temple and from the heritage that they've known. And he placed them in a foreign land. Their choices had real consequences. That's true for you and, and me as well. Why is this important? It's important to realize this and to say this out loud at first. Why? Because our choices, the vast majority of our choices, I would even venture to say virtually all of our choices, lead us one of, down one of two paths, as you see on the art here. One of two paths, a, a path that leads us closer to God or a path that takes us farther away from him. A path that moves us toward him or a path that moves us away from him. This is kind of how this goes. And so our choices have consequences, and that's important because of where those consequences lead spiritually. It doesn't mean um, uh, that, that absolutely 100% every choice does, but most, the vast majority of our choices do. They just lead us one way um, or the other. <clears throat> and, and frankly, it's not really a question uh, of religion or not. Well, it's not just religious choices. It's not only moral choices because so much of what goes on in, in our heart happens outside of a, what you and I would term a religious context. And I just point you to this um, story in, in Luke chapter 15. There's um, a story about a father and two sons, one of whom takes his inheritance and runs away to a far, far, far land and uh, puts himself essentially in exile. Um, and he's in a bad spot. And then there's a son who stays home who's also in a bad spot, right? So you've got irreligious people and religious people, and both of them are a long way from God because of their choices. Choices lead us toward God or away, okay? Um, the, the wrong question when it comes to this whole idea of commitment and this whole idea of, of understanding and discerning what God's will is and the direction that we should follow, the, the wrong question is this. Uh, it comes up a lot, and you just see if you identify. The wrong question is this. Uh, what, what is God's will for my life? I'm saying that's the wrong question. You're thinking, why is that the wrong question? Because it's too long. We need to truncate that just a little bit. Cut it off a little bit. Because the right question goes something like this. What is God's will? 
And then I need to jump in on that, right? We've used this metaphor before, a river where if you, it, the river shapes the landscape just like God's will shapes us, and we're either in or we're out, right? We're either um, going where it goes or we're out. We're out walking, one of, one of the two. Um, it defines us. We don't define it. Um, the right question is what is God's will? I just point this, you know, we've, we've had airlines in the... Uh, News here recently, uh, United a couple weeks ago, American, what, a day or two ago, uh, you know, whatever. That's what they do, fine. Uh, but here's the deal. You could jump on an airplane uh, and, you know, you get seated and you plop down and uh, captain puts throttle forward, off you go, right? You're moving. And then you say to yourself, hey, this is flight 2484 going to Wichita. Really, I wanted to go to San Francisco, though. At that point, does it really matter? Right? I mean, you're in the airplane. You're going for it, right? And you think to yourself, I mean, the more you get worked up, you're like, hey, I had the Golden Gate Bridge, not Wichita. You know, like I wanted to do Chinatown, not Wichita. Wichita, they've got no Chinatown in Wichita. Like they're in Kansas. So I want to do Chinatown and I want to see the Golden Gate Bridge. Like I want... I want to go to San Francisco. And so you're 500-something miles an hour, 35,000 feet, and all of a sudden you bring the stewardess bell. Bing! Uh, yes, sir, can I help you? Can I get you some water? No, no, no. You can get me to San Francisco. I'm sorry, sir, this is actually going a different... We're going to Wichita. I know, but I want to go to San Francisco. What are my choices at that point? I can stand up, walk to the front of the plane, pull the thing and jump out. That won't end very well for me or for those with me. Or for those who might be on the ground underneath me. Because choices have consequences, right? And so the, the question of commitment is to say, not what is God's will for my life, because that still keeps me at the center of it all. The, the, the question is, what is God's will? I'm going to plant myself on the plane. I'm going to drop myself in the river, and I'm going to go where it goes. That's what commitment looks like. I grew up at a place, uh, you've been around, maybe you've heard me tell this before. I grew up at a place, the, the faith environment in which I grew up, the church that I grew up, it was a good church, uh, but there were a lot of people um, who took faith and wrapped it around their life. It wasn't until between my eighth and ninth grade year that I actually saw someone who took their life and wrapped it around their faith. They weren't just dropping in secret ingredients every so often. They weren't just trying to figure out exactly where it would fit. They were saying, hey, listen, I'm all in here. I'm, I'm believing yes, 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 and yes. And so I'm going to let my life be shaped by this faith that I have. And that's a different way of living, but yet that's the way that we're supposed to live. The big lie is that God's will, and we, we believe this about commitment, um, the, the, that the big lie is that God's will sounds something like advice. It sounds something like advice. I can take it. I can leave it. I can say, hey, God, that sounds pretty good. I, I think that'll enhance my life, or I think that'll enhance my enjoyment. And the diagnostic question that you can ask yourself is this. Hey, if I knew what, it, what his will was beforehand, would I do it unconditionally? If that's the case, if you can say yes to that, then, then you're, you're at the point where you're saying, hey, God's will is not advice. It's not an option for me. The thing that undergirds that, um, the, the problem, if you will, that underlies that lie, the thing that supports that lie is, is this, that we don't actually, we know so little. It's not, not actually, but we, just, we know so little of the one that we're following. So I just want to point you back to verse 4 here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
And you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Lord. That's, that's the, when, when the Old Testament capitalizes that name, it, it's the covenant name of God. It's Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, it, it's, so he's saying, thus says the I am of hosts. And so he not only says what his covenant name is, but the, the Lord of hosts is a warrior name. So he's like busting his shirt open going, oh, okay, you want some of this? That's what this is like. Thus says the Lord of hosts. The God of Israel. So he's not just a warrior, but he's saying, hey, and you're my people, the God of Israel. You're my people. And now in Jesus, he's spoken over us. Hey, thus says the Lord of hosts, the, the God of the, the people of Jesus. He's spoken that over us. So we have, when I say that the underlying problem in, in thinking that God's will is advice is that we know so little of the God who's speaking to us, what we're losing sight of is this majestic, infinite powerful, omniscient, wonderful, beautiful, captivating God. That's who we're talking about. And to think that you and I could be so idiotic as to just take advice from him is foolish. It says way more about us than it ever does about him. God's will is not advice. And the underlying question the underlying problem is we know so little. The underlying question, I think, I think, just based upon conversations that I've had with some of you, goes something like this. But, but can I really trust him? Can I really follow him? Is it going to be okay? Will I be safe? Will, it, will I be safe? And what's the answer to that? Maybe. <laughs> Uh, there's this great scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Anybody Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Uh, and it's, I don't, I, don't remember, I don't recall it, I should say, being in the movie, but it is in, in the book. And uh, Susan and Mr. Beaver are talking, and Susan says this. Mr. Beaver says this first. Aslan, they go, who's Aslan? And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I wish I could do this in a British accent. Uh, I... I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Some of us approach God like that. Safe? No, you're not necessarily going to be safe, but he's good. But he's good. And how do we know? How do we know that we can trust him? Rather than take advice from him, how do we know that we can trust him and, and follow him no matter what? How do we know that, he can, that we can trust him with our commitment? And I point you to, um, this is 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5. And if you uh, have a Bible and can flip over there, great. If not, just listen to what this says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this is verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Some of your translations may have compels us or constrains us. There's a controlling function. But for the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That's commitment right there. They no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's the thing. The reason why we can trust him, the, we, the reason why we know he's good, he's not necessarily say, but he's good. The reason why we can follow him is because he has already shown his commitment to us. God sent Jesus to us 
for us so that he could die in our place and rise again on our behalf. And therefore, we can give our lives to him. We can put our lives in his hands. We can give ourselves to him fully. We can commit to him. The, the commitment that you and I would make to him is based on the commitment that he has shown to us already in the cross. That's why the love of Christ is such a controlling function. So the question of commitment is the question that we have to start with. The second question is this. Uh, how often do we do this? Do we do this regularly? I, I use the word daily. Back here in Jeremiah chapter 4, uh, chapter 29. The, um, let me just pause before we read the text and ask, ask this question. Which is easier, to follow God in the small things or the big things? How many, how many are small things people? Come on, raise your hand, vote, let's do it. Right here. How many are small things? How many think it's easier to follow God in the big things? How many of you think it's easier to follow God in the big things if you're following him in the small things? Oh, preacher, you got me there, thank you. Okay, here's my point. Uh, I was a junior. We were playing um, basketball at Spring High School, the mighty Huntsville Hornets versus the Spring Lions. Uh, it comes down to it. There's about seven or so seconds left. Uh, our team is up two. I get fouled, and I'm going to the free throw line. The coach for the Spring Lions calls a timeout because he wants to ice the shooter. I got this. I walk over. I walk over to our huddle. Uh, we talk for just a second about what strategy is, and coach, coach looks at me, and he says this. Hey, he's trying to ice you. There's nobody I'd rather have at the free throw than the line than you. Go out there and make him. Let's win this ball game. Pats me on the butt and sends me out there, right? Huge encouragement, right? Huge encouragement. That's what you want to go out with. Parents, that's what you want to send kids out with, right? Like, you can do this. You've got what it takes. Um, huge encouragement. I go out. Um, you know, everybody's cheering, noise, all that kind of stuff. I sink two free throws. We win the ball game. No problem. Here's what, well, thank you. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Here's why. Why could I perform in that crucial moment? Because what you don't know, you may know now, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of free throws. I shot at least 100 free throws a day. Every day. For years on end. Hundreds and thousands of free throws. So that when that crucial moment came, guess what? I was ready. In the small moments, the day-to-day -day moments, I was practicing, if you will, so that in the big moments, I could perform. Um, the whole idea of you and me following and committing, like, I mean, oh God, everything's just kind of falling apart. Okay, I'm going to commit to you. It's better to walk with him through all of the rest of the stuff, right? Why? Because most of our life is made up of, of small decisions, not big ones. Most of our life is made up of the, of the small things, not the big ones. And furthermore, there are times when he will say things to us that won't necessarily make sense or won't necessarily be all that great. And I'll just give you a brief example. Sometimes we follow God, it leads us into awesome, and sometimes we follow God and we're like, oh, that hurt. Um, in Matthew chapter 14, the followers of Jesus, Jesus uh, uh, feeds 5,000 men, about 20,000 people probably. He has this incredible miracle, and all the disciples are like, what? Then he says, hey, get in the boat and row across the lake. But a storm's coming. I know, get in a boat and row across the lake. Same Jesus who fed all those thousands also said, hey, hey, pal, get to work. Miracle. Got to get you through a storm. Same Jesus. 
There are times when what he says to us leads us uh, into euphoria and times when it leads us into affliction. And when, when that happens, the daily part of this is to say no to these temptations. And here's, here's three of them just in the text. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. See, sometimes he sends you into exile. That's just part of it. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, does it take a while to build a house? Yes. Does it take a while to plant a garden and eat the produce of it? Yes. So we're talking about you're going to be there a while. And that's probably not a welcome thing. God, you've, you've, you've moved us. Okay, okay, okay. We get it. Put us back. No, uh-uh. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. That's a different generation. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Don't disengage from the culture. Engage. Stay engaged. There's a temptation um, when we have to make these kind of daily decisions. Here's one of the temptations. God, if I see you move in a different direction than what I think. If I see you move in a different direction, here's what I... Oh, plant gardens, build houses, marry, get... Wait, 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 wait. I want to go back home, God. I'm in Oregon. I want to go back to Texas. Like, come on. I'm in Babylon. I want to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Why would I plant a garden? Come on, God, move. move me. This is a different direction than what I thought. Here's the question. We're going to San Francisco. I want to go to San Francisco. We're going to Wichita. The temptation in that moment, when you, when you um, say, hey, I want to go a different direction, the temptation is to go, okay, then God, I'm out. I'm out. Question, has God ever done anything wrong? Has he ever told you to do anything that's wrong? No. So you continue to walk day by day with him. You continue to walk day by day. The temptation is to head a different direction, but instead you stay, you stay, and you stay, you stay in that. Um, here's another temptation, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you, the fortune tellers, uh, who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. The second temptation, we've got the first one is a different direction of this kind of daily walk with God, but the second temptation is a better promise you got people right here in verses 8 and 9. In fact, chapter 28 is full of it. You go back and read it later. Um, Hananiah comes up. He prophesies. He's like, hey, here's two horns of iron, and God is going to smite the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is standing by. He's on the side. He's like, amen, and let it be. But it's not going to. I wish it were, but it's not going to happen. In fact, God's going to get you for lying. And God says, hey, don't listen to those people because I haven't sent them. There are people who will gladly, listen church family, there, will people, there are people who will gladly tell you what you want to hear. And they will do so because they want something from you. They will do so because it will justify their own choices. They will do so because they want to continue to uh, uh, be your friend or draw from you. or be, it, it doesn't matter what their motivation is. There will always be people who tell you what you want to hear, but what you need to hear comes from God. Who offers you a better promise than God? What's the answer? Nobody does. Nobody does. Who offers you a better path than the one that God has, has you on? What's the, nobody does. 
Nobody does. There will always be people, as he says here in verse 8, the prophets, the diviners, the people on Facebook, he could have written that down. There will always be people who will tell you what you want to hear. Always. But what we need to hear, the promise we need to hear, doesn't come from them. It comes from God. So don't jump ship when you think you've got a better promise. Verse 10 Last temptation. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, this is the one that I struggle with the most, if I can just say that. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill you, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. How long was it? Somebody say it. 70 years. This is the temptation of timing. In particular, bad timing. Long timing. I don't know about you, I don't do particularly well with patience. Like, I don't love waiting. And God said 70 years. Why? Because there's some stuff that needs to get cleaned out. There's some stuff that needs to die off. There's some stuff that needs to be built back in. There's some stuff that needs to be remembered and some stuff that needs to be forgotten. 70 years. God, 70, 70 years. As much as it is important, and it is, to understand the direction of God, it is equally important to understand His timing. Those are both the key, those are the two key components to discerning His will, is direction and timing, and they're equally important. Because if I try to run ahead, hey God, uh, you know, you're kind of dragging on this, I think I'll just push the agenda forward a little bit. No, 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 that's not how that works. That's not how that works. The, the big lie, when, when it comes to these temptations, a different direction, a better promise, or bad timing, we want to jump ship, we want to say, hey God, I think I'll go a different way, we want to get out of the airplane, get out of the river, however you want to say it, but we want out. The big lie that we're tempted to believe right then, and, and we use often to justify our disconnecting from God, is this, that God wants me to be successful, and I've got a plan, and God's not doing my plan. The big lie is God wants me to be successful. And we, we, we read verse 29, verse, excuse me, chapter 29, verse 11, and we put it on our coffee cup and we say, oh, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to, uh, for your welfare, or some of you have, to prosper you and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The word welfare there, or prosper, to give us peace, that's, that's the shalom. That's that sense of wholeness. Now here's the thing, um, shalom, that sense of wholeness about us does not mean success. It does not mean you get the American dream. It does not mean white picket fences and everything. What does it mean? It means that God's going to give you a sense of wholeness. He's going to do things in you and for you that you will not be able to do for yourselves. Why? Because he is much more interested in your character than he is in your comfort. He's much more interested in who you become than where you set yourself. Much more interested. So our commitment then, yes, to say yes to God, but then that daily walking it out, that daily exercise of that is to remember he's way more interested in my character than my comfort. That's why he wants to bring me shalom. Well, how do you hear that? Well, how do you hear that when uh, that doctor calls and he's like, hey, yeah, it is cancer? How do you hear that when it's, uh, the, the pink slip comes? Hey, thanks for your service. How do you hear that when uh, that friendship that you thought was there, all of a sudden is not there? 
How do you hear that when there's just insecurity that abounds around you? How do you hear that when um, your relational world is rocked, uh, when the covenant vow that you made with another is somehow broken, um, when uh, the, the, the kids aren't doing, I mean, you're, you're doing the best that you can here with what you got, and, and the kids just, just they're, not, they're doing their own thing. They're not doing what they ought to be doing. How do you, how do you hear that? I'm going to bring wholeness, and I care more about your character uh, than I do um, your comfort. How do you hear that when you thought you heard right the first time? Because somebody spoke to you in the name of the Lord, like Hananiah did in chapter 28. Um, I ran across this quote this week, and I just I want you to see it and put eyes on it so that you understand daily what it means uh, to live this out. This is from G.K. Chesterton. It's, he's a great author and hilarious. Here's what he said. Jesus promised his disciples three things. Number one, that they would be completely fearless. This is awesome. Like, hey, there's nobody who's going to be able to do things to you that, that I don't allow. And secondly, there's nobody going to do things to you that will be permanent. So things like living as Christ, dying, it's gain, right? Like the worst they can do is kill me, I win. <laughs> completely fearless, completely fearless. Absurdly happy. Why absurdly happy? Because they walk with people and with a God um, who are filled up uh, and, and overflow in what the Bible calls pleasures forevermore. There's so little that they need from the world that they are absurdly happy. There are trinkets and, and toys and all sorts of stuff that other people are in hot pursuit of. And these, uh, the followers of Jesus are like, hey, we don't need that stuff for our happiness. In fact, it has impact. Zero. Zero impact. They would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. How do you hear that when whatever bad happens comes? You hear it as completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. You hear that as, I care more about your character than I do your comfort. And that leads to the last little bit. We commit our lives to him. We do so with a regularity, a daily kind of engagement, not giving away to temptation, not giving away to temptation, but instead stepping into uh, um, what he has for us, even if it's hard. Why? Because we know that he has plans, and they're good plans, and they give us a future and a hope. And in verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The last phrase I want to point you to is to seek him. Seek him. Did you know that you're never actually commanded to seek God's will ever in the Bible? Ever. But multiple times you're commanded to seek him. Isaiah 55, Amos chapter 5, uh, Hosea chapter 10, like over and over and over and over and over. We can just point to multiple places all throughout the scriptures where the Bible says, seek him. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while he can be found. You should seek him today. Seek him and you will live over and over and over again. We're never commanded to seek his will, but we are commanded um, to seek him. When we... Um, uh, uh, seek his will apart from him, the, the lie that we believe goes something like this. And I'm going to illustrate it absurdly in just a moment. But God's will and his person are found um, separately. That's, that's the big lie. So I'll just, right here. Here's Debbie here on the front row. Um, and if we wanted to find um, the will of Debbie, the decision-making part of Debbie, where would we look? Wherever Debbie is. Do you get me on that? Like her decision-making is not somewhere else. It's with her, right? 
in, in our minds, because we've read something, been taught something, sometimes we think God's will is somehow over here and I need to go find it, and God is over here and I, I can talk to him later about this. Like this is some substance that's separate from God. Folks, God's will and his personhood are not separate. The way you find God's will is you find God. That's why he says in verse 12, then you will call upon me, come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Verse 13, you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Brief illustration, and then we're done. Uh, very first time I went to Paris, and I, I love the city. Very first time I went to Paris, we were on a mission trip. We had about a 19-hour layover um, on the way back, on the way back stateside. And uh, one of our guys had been there before. And so I said, John, hey, you're in charge of Paris. You're the guide. He goes, are you sure you don't want to do it? You're the leader of the trip. I got the mission part. You take Paris. We're good. Uh, okay, okay, that's fine. He took it. He ran with it, right? When we landed in Paris, we dropped all of our stuff at the hotel. The, 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 the thing was, hey, we got 19 hours. Uh, we have to sleep about six of those. The other 13, though, let's burn it up, man. Let's see all the biggies that we can see. Let's go for it, right? And so John makes a route. He makes a plan. He does his thing. He, he does his thing. And you know what we did? Wherever John went, that's where we went. Because it was way better having a guide than it was a map. I'd never been. John had. He knew exactly where we were going. He knew what tube stop to jump off. He knew what, I mean, he knew all of that stuff. We turned the corner, boom, Eiffel Tower. Hey, everybody, Eiffel Tower, you know, okay, let's move. You know, I mean, it was that kind of moment. We had a guide to follow. And because we had a guide to follow, listen to me, we were not looking down at a map. We were looking up at the guide. And we were able to see what was going on around us. We were able to listen to the conversations that were happening. We were able to interact, all of this. We were able to not miss stuff. Why? Because we knew who we were following. We knew who we were following. Well, you know, I kind of live like the hybrid model with Google Maps, you know, who's like part guide, part map, you know. Here's the thing about Google, Google Maps, though. You, you, I mean, because that excuse has actually been said to me before. Uh, here's the thing about that. Like, you have to concentrate on that, right? Even though the voice is coming, you have to concentrate on what's going on right there in front of you. That, that's the deal, right? And then you got to turn around. Shut up, kids. I'm listening to the Google lady, right? And you, you, that never happens in your car? liars. Um, and then you're looking like, do I turn right? Is it right? Is it right? Oh, stop. You know, you got even that though, you're missing everything that's going on around you versus if you were following somebody, all you would have to do is follow them. In this particular case, a guide is way better than a map. How? I'll say, I'll say it instead of asking. The best way to find out what someone wants on a consistent basis is by knowing them intimately. That's why he says, you'll seek, not my will, you'll seek me and find, not my will, me. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And people who know him well are always more interested in following him than in finding his will. Why? Because he's way better than anything that they, that they could receive from it. The giver is better than any gift that he could give. And so we've got commit. Put your yes on the table. We've got daily, a regular part. Seek him. And so I want to put those three things together real quick. Commit daily to seek him.
Commit daily to seek him. Every person in here can walk out of here and apply that. Well, you, you know, I don't know you. I don't know your circumstance. I get it. But you know, I know it. I do know this. You can commit daily to seek him. Well, because I'm going through a hard time. These people were in exile. They know a little bit about hard times. Commit daily to seek him. Well, I mean, it's really pretty low right now. These people were pretty low. Commit daily to seek him. Well, I think tomorrow's going to be better. These people had a promise from God that's on a coffee cup 2,000 something years later, right? I mean, like, commit daily to seek him. Here's how I want to close. I want to ask you this, and then we'll take some time to pray, but out of those three lines, commit daily to seek him. Which do you need to focus on most? The commitment part? God, I just need to opt in here. Just push all of my chips in and go, I'm in with you. The daily part. I need to build into my life something that keeps me on track. Or to seek him. Because God, all I've done is talk to you about this job situation. I haven't really talked to you about me or you. I need to seek you, not not an answer from you. I need to seek you. Commit daily to seek him. Out of those three, which do you need to lay hold of? Which do you need to walk out of here and apply? Let me pray, and we'll ask for God's help. Go ahead and get settled. If you need to put some stuff down, close an app, whatever you need to do, feel free to do that. But just take a moment, ask the Holy Spirit, What has my name on it?